Hey everybody, it's Brad here. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to take a minute and let you guys know about our coaching program we run here at Macros Inc. We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At Macros Inc., we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching, and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. Welcome back. Episode number two of season two. We're going to do another deep dive episode today. Um, We actually have a lot of content we're going to cover. It's probably going to be a little bit longer of an episode, which is actually pretty exciting. And then a lot of the content today is actually going to dovetail into a kind of live lecture that we're giving in our Facebook group. So if you're not a part of that, definitely go check it out. Uh, So our nutrition insights today, we're going to be talking about diabetes and how to think about it. On the business side, we're going to talk about how everything works, but nothing works forever. And on the what am I learning today, we're going to cover how if you want to make any progress in any of your goals, you have to make sure your mental space is taken care of. So that's on the docket for the show today. We also have some guests coming up in the future episodes, some people that I'm really excited to talk to. Um, we have some awesome topics coming up. Some of the people are going to be from outside of Macros Inc. Some of the people are going to be from inside Macros Inc. So super excited. Buckle in for today's show. It's going to be a good one. We'll see you guys in the show right now. Nutrition insight today is maybe a little bit less just nutrition and a little more basic human physiology. And one of the major issues that we face kind of as as society and one of the bigger health things that I think, A, we have to deal with pretty much at scale. Um, A lot of us will have to deal with as we get older. And, you know, B, one of the things that I don't think people really fully understand exactly what it is, how we think about it, what the best way to think about it is, um, and why that matters. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about diabetes. Um, We'll probably focus mostly on type 2, but we'll talk a little bit about type 1 for a minute. Um, And that's kind of what we're going to do a deep dive in today. I'm also going to give a very full lecture on this in our community group today. Um, So just kind of was preparing some notes. I I give talks on this quite a bit. Um, I actually did my my doctoral work and my postdoc work was in diabetes and metabolism. Um, there was, I was in some sub-focuses of it. But that's, that was kind of what I spent most of my academic career studying. Uh, so I really want to cover three main topics as we're talking about this. Is one, what is it? Two, why does it matter? And three, what do we do about it? So the first question is, what is it? And I think this is the most important part of the discussion because I really want people to understand exactly what it is. When we actually think about the definition of diabetes as a disease, is it is a group of diseases that result in blood sugar that is above, quote, normal level, right? And, and normal has a little bit of a connotation to it. 
Um, but that's the definition, right? It's not one disease. It's a group of diseases. And there's a few ways that we categorize this. Um, and I will put a link in the show notes to the actual slides that accompany this discussion that we'll be doing in our group so you can actually look through some of these. So in my mind, the way that I think about diabetes is you can categorize those group of diseases into two categories. There's insulin deficient diabetes, which is what we call type 1 diabetes, right? That's a disease of your body doesn't make enough insulin. And most people with type 1 diabetes, eventually they don't make any insulin, right? Once, once beta cell destruction is complete or sufficient, your body basically doesn't make insulin. Then there's insulin resistance driven diabetes. And this is what we call type 2 diabetes. And in some cases in um, pregnant women, they get gestational diabetes. So I categorize them as insulin deficient and insulin resistant. And there's two very different pathophysiologies of the disease. And that has very different you know, connotations and contexts and results and outcomes based on whether it's insulin deficiency or insulin resistance driven diabetes. And so we're going to talk almost entirely today about type 2 because that's what affects the most people, what most of the concepts we're talking about today really cover. Um, we'll do a type 1 discussion with some experts later on that because it's a little bit different. Um, well, it's, it's a lot different, but how we think about it in people is a little bit different. Um, so the first question that I always ask people when I give this talk is, what direction do you think the relationship goes? Does high blood sugar cause diabetes or does diabetes cause high blood sugar? I'll take just a quick second and just kind of have a, a little bit of a silent pause and let you think about that. So now that you have an answer in your head, I want to walk through what the actual pathophysiology of diabetes is and kind of the natural history of the disease. So I have a graph pulled up here, um, and you should go take a look at this. I think it's slide six in the deck, and you guys will have the link to it, is as time goes along, there's basically three things to think of. There's like, imagine three curves in your head. There's what we call beta cell function. That's one curve. That's how your insulin cell, your insulin producing cells in your pancreas function. Like how are they normal? Are they working at an increased rate or a decreased rate? That's one line. The next one is insulin resistance, which is how much insulin resistance does your body have? And then three is, what is your blood glucose doing? So if you kind of track these lines, as the kind of disease progresses or as time goes on, the first lines, the first line, the beta cell function and the insulin resistance, those are the first two to go up slash increase over time, right? So those are the first two things to go up. Your insulin resistance goes up and your beta cell function goes up to match that. But your blood glucose stays pretty stable during this period. Now, as time goes on, insulin resistance continues to go up. But at some point, you get to the point where your beta cell function can't increase anymore. You've kind of maxed out what your body's ability to produce insulin is and your beta cell function can do. And at that point, your insulin resistance continues to go up. So at that point, you start to see a little bit of blood glucose creep up. It starts to go a little bit above baseline. And then eventually, your beta cells stop functioning at a high level, and they decrease. The function decreases. And as that decreases and insulin resistance stays high, blood glucose continues to climb. So we don't actually see blood sugar go up until you're very 
far down the path of the disease. So here's the important thing to understand. Two things. One, diabetes, as we discussed earlier, by definition describes a symptom, elevated blood sugar, not the cause. And so when we look at the natural history of the disease, so how does your body progress over time in this disease? What it indicates is that the disease state of hyperglycemia, elevated blood sugar, is not the underlying cause, but a resultant feature of disordered metabolism. So kind of let that sink in just a little bit. So it's very interesting to know, and when we think about it in this terms, is that the disease process begins much earlier than elevated blood glucose appears. So you actually have insulin resistance before you see elevated blood glucose. You have increased insulin secretion before you have elevated blood glucose. And once those things can't keep up, once the insulin secretion and the insulin function can't keep up with maintaining blood glucose levels, that's when blood glucose starts to increase. So what is interesting, though, is while the disease process begins much earlier than elevated blood glucose appears, clinically, we actually diagnose it in most cases. There are some cases where it's diagnosed slightly differently, but it's diagnosed based on measures of glycemia. So we just discussed that elevated glycemia doesn't really show up until later in the disease. So that means that by the time a client or you know, a person receives a diagnosis, the disease process is actually in full swing, right? I mean, you are probably five, six, seven years down the process of insulin resistance in most people, you know, roughly about that time frame, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but you're, you're several years into the process of this pathophysiology before um, we actually see a clinical manifestation of it. So why does this matter? Why does diabetes matter? Especially if we think about, you know, from our perspective as coaches, from a global perspective, and from us as people. Well, there's a few things to think about. You know, one, I, I always view things in terms of, of risk and how it affects your whole life. And so this is where, um, and I think we talked about this on the podcast last season, is BMI, as inaccurate as it may be for some people, as kind of this whole healthy at every size thing, um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that. But at some point, you have to separate all the other things from just like, what is the absolute risk that things carry? And so when we look at diabetes, it's a very good thing um, to note is with diabetes, regardless of anything else, you have an increased risk of a lot of you know additional diseases, right? Cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, kidney disease, eye diseases, nervous system diseases. A lot of these things you have elevated risk, regardless of everything else. So that means like even if you are a lean phenotype type person with type two diabetes, which um, that's probably a, what warrants a much deeper discussion. But that can happen, right? Where you, you're not obese, you're not overweight, you're normal BMI, but you have type 2 diabetes. You still have an increased risk of a lot of these health outcomes. So it's important to understand just the risk profile. So one of the concepts that I always try to tell people is if we realize that the elevated blood sugar is really a result of kind of 
the disordered metabolism that results in insulin resistance. Diabetes is not simply, specifically type 2, is not simply a disorder of elevated blood sugar, but of disordered metabolism. And this affects virtually every organ system. And what's important is this actually changes how your clients respond to exercise and it can change their dietary needs, but not in the way a lot of people think. So one of the most interesting aspects that kind of blew my mind when I really started to get into like the very deep physiology and molecular biology of how diabetes works is in type 2 diabetes, the most fundamental thing that actually happens is your body has an impaired ability to metabolize fat. And your body actually relies much more heavily upon glucose for metabolism. Now that, that seems counterintuitive, right? Wow, it's, my blood sugar is elevated. I must have a hard time metabolizing carbohydrates. But what's actually happening is we know that elevated blood sugar is a result of the disordered metabolism. The disordered metabolism actually comes from your fat metabolism is impaired. So here's what's really interesting. In the body, let's think about it this way. You have circulating nutrients in your blood, and then you have your tissues that actually utilize your nutrients. So in people with type 2 diabetes, here's what happens. Your peripheral tissue actually increases the rate of fatty acid absorption from circulation, and it decreases the amount of carbohydrates that these tissues pull in from circulation. So that results in you have elevated glucose because you're, you're not taking up as much from circulation. But what's interesting is inside those tissues, you actually have decreased fat oxidation and increase carbohydrate oxidation. So your body is using more carbohydrates to fuel things and using less fat to fuel things. So you actually get increased fat storage. And we have tons of data to support this. And we, have, uh, we probably have dozens of studies that have actually done like tissue biopsies. They've done isotopic infusion studies. They've actually looked at like, how does this occur? And what's interesting is, if you actually look at the difference between somebody who has type 2 diabetes and somebody who does not, um, especially if you look at people who are like overweight and have type 2 diabetes or people who have obesity and type 2 diabetes versus people who do not, the rate of fatty acid uptake is probably four to six times higher. And how much fat is stored, and by fat I mean like actual like lipids, fatty acids is stored inside their muscle tissue and their other peripheral tissues is about four to six times higher as the storage content in those tissues. And what is important about this is, think about your, especially your skeletal muscle. Nutrients are coming in and getting utilized all the time. But as you shift towards having obesity and type 2 diabetes, and specifically when the insulin resistance sets in, as those fatty acids come into your skeletal muscle to be used for fuel, the metabolism in those cells is I'll just call it dysregulated, such that a lot of those fatty acids don't end up getting utilized, and they actually get stored as forms of fat that actually exacerbate the insulin-resistant process. So this is actually a very interesting combination of what happens in the deep physiology of your body. And so this shift is very interesting. And what this means is that how your body responds to exercise when you have diabetes versus you don't is very different. So if you take a lean person who doesn't have type 2 diabetes 
in a person who has obesity and type 2 diabetes, the amount of fatty acids they use during exercise at a given percentage is much different. So if you take a lean person and you put them on a 40% max effort, right? Probably 40% is of that exercise is fueled by carbohydrates and about 60% is fueled by fatty acids. The person with type 2 diabetes at 40%, they have almost zero of their exercise is fueled by fatty acids and almost 100% is fueled by carbohydrates. So this, this actually affects their ability to do sustained work, right? Their overall work capacity is, is impaired because the rate limiting thing in this situation is carbohydrates and you have a much lower fuel supply. Um, and then how their body responds metabolically from like a fatigue standpoint, right? We know glycolysis results in faster fatigue due to a lot of mechanisms that go on. So the actual deep fundamental physiology is much different. So that's kind of the primer on this discussion. Um, on our next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about what types of exercise and nutrition actually should be utilized in these situations. But that's a really good starting point um, for this discussion that kind of just gives you an idea of what's going on fundamentally in the human body as you shift to a more a, a phenotype of having type 2 diabetes. So we'll take a quick break and then we will jump into the business insights for the show today. Moving on to the business insights today. Um, this is a, a phrase I heard, God, it must have been 10 years ago, and it related more to nutrition specifically, but I thought it was a good kind of correlate to business um, and kind of got me reframing my head of how I think about some things. I just wanted to share these thought processes with you. So the, the kind of quote slash quip slash idiom is, everything works, nothing works forever. Right, and I think this applies really well to the nutrition spaces. Every diet can work, but it may not work forever. Right, what works in your twenties when you're an athlete is going to be different than when you're forty and you're super busy and have kids. To what's going to be different when you are seventy-five and you know walking is the bulk of your physical activity and you're just trying to to live longer and manage your cardiovascular disease risk. Right, like everything works, but nothing's going to work forever. And so I think the same thing applies in business. And one of the big things that I've been focusing on a lot lately, and one of the things that I kind of struggle with a little bit is as you scale a company, right? When you have one person, five people, 10 people, 20 people, 40 people, 80 people, 160 people, um, things have to change over time. And there's a couple kind of core areas where I think they have to change. And I kind of want to just talk a little bit about each of those core areas. There's kind of six that I'm going to go through. Um, the first one is delegation. As you scale, you know, at some point, you have to delegate tasks to other people because you can't, you really can't do everything yourself, right? Even if you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, at some point, like you just can't do it. Like there's no way I could manage all of our clients at Macros Inc. It's just physically impossible. The math just doesn't work out. If I were to give 30 minutes a day to, all, to a client, that would be how many, how many 
let's, let's say you gave each client 30 minutes a week, like on the low end. Like, let's just say that's how that math worked. That means I could do 48 a day. That's how many a month? That's 1,200, almost 1,500 a month, right? So if I worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I still couldn't reach the half, not even half of our clients, right? So you, at some point, even in the most extreme situations, you have to delegate. And with that comes a couple of things. One, you have to have systems and processes in place such that when you delegate, the ball doesn't get dropped, the quality is maintained, and then you have to have systems and processes in place to like reflect, review, audit, do QA, QC on those processes. And so the delegation is a huge amount of that. Um, and that's really difficult at first. I mean, the first time you delegate a major business task is very scary, especially when it's like your baby and that's something that you've been involved in building with people. Um, that's the first thing is you have to figure out how to delegate. And the second thing that kind of dovetails with dovetails with that is how you control the work in the company, right? Delegating is handing something off to somebody to do. Control is how much control do you assert over that person? And what's interesting is, is as you scale, each level of scale, in my mind, requires less control and more guardrails, right? It's kind of like the way I think about it is, as you get bigger and as you scale, you need people to operate autonomously and you need to give people a lot of kind of empowerment to do their jobs and to think outside the box and to do a lot of things. But your job as the leader is to put guardrails on it such that they really can't fail horribly. And if there is any sort of, quote, failure, um, it's not like anything major. It's some small like learning opportunity for that person, right? You, It's kind of like the way I always think about it is you should never put an employee in a position such that if they do something wrong, everything goes wrong, right? It's like the worst case that happens is it's a learning opportunity. So that control, you have to give up a lot of control and that can be difficult too. But you have to do it in such a way that you put people in a position where they can't really fail that bad. So that's the... That's the second thing. The third thing that comes with that, and it kind of spins out of the first two, is your ego. And this is an interesting one and something that I, I struggle with. And I think I'm, I fall on one side to maybe sometimes my detriment is as a leader, you have to have a lot of confidence that you have the right answers. Um, you have to have a lot of charisma that people trust that what you're going to do is the right decision. Um, but I'm also a big believer and maybe to, to a fault of you really have to put your own ego out of the way. So I was, it was funny. I was having a, a conversation with a colleague the other day, actually it was yesterday, and he, was, he had just taken a new job um, at a pretty rapidly growing company. And he was brought in as kind of a a, a very high level position in the company. And he was just kind of talking about some of the struggles that he's having in his new role. And one of the things that he mentioned was like, whenever he goes into the board meetings with the the CEO of this rapidly growing um, startup is 
the CEO always makes it known that it's his way or the highway. And he does it very strongly and openly and verbally. And everybody knows that that's how it works, right? And there's some benefit to that, but there's also a big amount of drawback. And I don't think it always has to be that way, right? I think as the CEO or a major executive at a large company, you have to have you have to have a pretty strong will. Um, you have to be able to hold firm on your vision. But I think there's a big way to make people feel empowered. And even if you kind of have the mindset of, hey, it's my way or the highway, the way that your ego comes out and the way that you treat people surrounding those things really matters, especially as you scale. Because if it's just you and two other people in the company, you can kind of have these pretty heated discussions. You can have these things in closed doors and you guys can have relationships that just like can survive it. But when you have a hundred people that see those interactions, that starts to bleed into the company culture. And so I think your ego has to take a big check at the door of like, I have to figure out a way to manage my ego such that I can be charismatic. I can lead people. I can galvanize people. I can make it very known that when I make a decision, it's the right decision. But I also manage my ego such that other people feel comfortable voicing their ideas. Other people feel like their ideas are actually heard. People feel like I'm not on an ego trip that I have to be right because it's an ego thing and it's more of I'm confident in what I'm doing. And so I think you really have to strike that balance. Um, so I think that's that's a big thing that as you scale, your ego has to scale appropriately in both aspects, right? You have to you have to grow as a person to have more confidence and to have better mental strength and to have you know less you know fluctuations of emotion, and you have to be able to operate at a much higher level. But you also have to find a way to manage your ego such that it doesn't get in the way of building the people around you. You have to be able to say, hey, that's a great idea. I didn't think about that. Let's, let's, let's execute on that. <clears throat> right? And I think that's a big piece. The last one is, and this is more of a, <clears throat> a personal philosophy of mine and of MacroZinc that we've adopted and may not apply to every business. But I think transparency is a huge piece, right? One of the things when I was early in my career that I always struggled with was the lack of transparency of the broader organization. Like, you know, if if you go to your boss and you ask for a raise and they say no, and they're like, we don't have the money. Like, well, how do I know that, right? Um, Or if you go to your boss and you ask something and they're like, oh, well, I have to wait for X, Y, and Z because of this and that. And but you're like, well, is that actually happening? So I think transparency as you grow and scale makes a massive difference, right? I think about what we try to do at MacroZinc, and we haven't always done this perfectly. There's been hiccups, missteps, things not ruled out correctly. Um, you know, we're human, we make mistakes too, but trying to be as transparent as possible, like, hey, every quarter, go over the revenues of the company and the expenses of the company and the net profitability so people know, like, Hey, we maybe generate X in revenue, but our overhead based on employees and all this stuff is Y. So the real net profit is this. And how we as executives think about net profit is, you know, that's just not, hey, that doesn't go to to Brad's yacht. That's like, 
hey, that's operating capital for, you know, if we have a downturn, right? If there's another COVID closure, if there is, you know, some change in regulation where we don't get new clients for a couple months, if iOS updates really affect marketing, we have to have X amount of buffer. So here's how that money is earmarked. Um, that type of transparency. Here is how people advance their career at Macros Inc. Here's the steps that they have to take to go from coach to lead coach to director to executive, right? How we make decisions, how contracts are structured. Um, all of those things, the more transparent you can be, the better. Like also, you know, how are you performing as an employee? Here's your data dashboard so you can see what your metrics like. Obviously, coaching is highly qualitative, but there's some quantitative stuff like. What are your client reviews? How long does it take you to respond to a client? What's your average client length? How does that compare to the rest of the company? Like all of those data things are hyper transparent. So you can actually see like, hey, this is how I fit in. Here's what the company standards are. Here's what we're doing. And so nobody ever feels like there's a black box. Um, now, we don't always do that perfectly, right? We're always learning. Like we had a miscue. Last week, it was totally on me. A new policy rolled out. It wasn't communicated clearly. There were some questions. There were some concerns. Like those things happen. But the more transparent you can be, you know, I think the better in those situations. Uh, the the fifth one is integrity, and so there's there's quite a few things that go into that. Um, how how to talk about this? I think there's a few ways to talk about it. The integrity piece, I think the first one is just making sure that you always do what's in the best interest of the company, the people, and the clients. And if you center most of your decisions around that, I think the integrity piece usually takes care of itself. Now, what does that mean by operating kind of a business with integrity and how does that matter as you scale? Um, I think I'll, I'll tackle the second question there first. In a very self-serving way, um, integrity as you scale becomes much more important because things going wrong have much bigger consequences when you're doing $10 million a year in revenue versus when you're doing $100,000 a year in revenue, right? If you, have, if you have a PR crisis, if you have a legal issue, if you have a data breach, if you have whatever sort of things happen, when you have 200 employees, it's a much bigger issue than when you have two employees, right? Um, so integrity as you scale becomes substantially more important from like a self-serving way because there's more lives involved, there's more lives affected, there's more stuff that can go wrong. Now, how do you operate a business with integrity? This is a good question. I think it has to start from the top. Um, I think if you take out, you know, human beings are flawed, we are emotional, sometimes we we make the wrong decision. Sometimes we make the wrong business choice. Sometimes, like all sorts of things happen. But you have to always operate with a level of integrity, right? You have to do what you say you're going to do. You have to be honest. You have to do things the right way, which sometimes takes longer, is more painful. But all those things matter in the long run because you build a culture around that. And then the last thing is, I think you have to reward integrity. Right? It's very easy to bury things under the rug. It's very easy to not deal with stuff. 
and you have to reward people for saying like, hey, this was a mistake, this happened, or I did X, Y, and Z, really sorry about it, wasn't thinking clearly, I took a shortcut because of Y. And you have to honor and respect that. And you kind of, you have to reward it, right? You don't have to reward the bad decision, but you do have to reward the integrity. And that looks different for each organization, right? I mean, if somebody does something stupid like and really hurts the company, but they tell you about it, Right, they're probably not going to get a promotion, but they're going to be rewarded in some shape or fashion. Right, there's going to be a conversation of like, "Hey, this showed me a lot, you know, of you as a person. It shows that I can always trust you to do the right thing at the end of the day." And that actually helps a huge amount. And then the last component I want to talk about real quick is company culture. We talked about this in season one, I think, a couple times, but I wanted to just kind of revisit it and talk about how as you scale, it really matters. And culture is one of those things that I think is a little amorphous and difficult to really pin down. And I feel very fortunate about the culture we have at Macros Inc. You know, we have a great group of people. Um, we all work very well together. There's a very <laughs> there's a very like jovial nature at our company in which we all take our jobs very seriously. Like there is a huge amount of pressure, effort. We have horribly high expectations of people, um, but we do it in a way that's enjoyable. Um, people get along really well. There's a lot of jokes. Uh, there's a lot of fun. And that culture piece, I think, is very difficult to try to like put a roadmap on. Right, you can't put a policy and procedure in place for culture. Um, you can't give a playbook for culture. It really comes down to how do you conduct yourself as people within your organization, and how do you treat each other? And I think that's one of the things that, as you scale, can get lost for a couple of reasons. One is, generally speaking, culture is set by the original people that are kind of within the company. And as you go from those first five, ten people to a hundred people, the the like distance in the nodes between people gets bigger. And so you have to figure out a way to just kind of permeate that culture and it always starts, you know, with kind of the leadership. And that doesn't just mean like the CEO executive people. It's also like the directors, the managers, um, all those things. So that's a big one. Um, and then the last thing is you have to invest in your culture. It's not just going to always be there. Like you have to revisit it. You have to talk about it. You have to track your culture. You have to invest time, money, resources into your culture, right? Like we have a completely online company. So we, we meet once a month. We do monthly game meetings. We have yearly meetups. We have you know, Slack channel conversations. We have, you know, funny things that we share and we send to each other. So culture you have to invest in. So those are the business insights today. Um, Everything works, nothing works forever. And as you scale, you really have to change the way that you delegate, the way that you control. You have to change how you manage your ego. You have to be highly transparent. You have to maintain your integrity and you have to prioritize and invest in your culture. We'll take another quick break and then we'll talk about what I'm learning today.
jumping into the last segment of the show, what am I learning today? It is a little bit on mental health, um, and I'm going to be very broad with this. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that my mental space is incredibly important. It's something that I have to actively work on all the time. Um, And what's very interesting is I notice that there's like a direct correlation between where my internal mental space is and how productive I am at my job, how I treat people in my relationships, um, how I interact with the world, and really just like how effective I am as a human. And one of the things that I learned at a pretty young age is, and just through some circumstances and life stuff, is your mental space is incredibly important. It's something you have to actively work on. You can't just like hope it's going to get better. And the most important thing is that no one else can do that work for you, right? It's a lot like if you want to become a, a very fit person or you want to have a great physique or you want to be able to run 100 miles or if you want to do anything physically, no one else can do that work for you, right? You can outsource a lot of things in your life. You can outsource your laundry. You can outsource your cooking. You can outsource your driving. You can outsource... I mean, you can even outsource a lot of your work, right? Um, but what you can't outsource is your physical training and your mental health and your mental space. Now, you can have people who help you with that, right? Like you can hire a counselor. just like you can hire a personal trainer. But you have to do the work and no one else can do that work for you. And that means you have to invest in it. You have to make a commitment to it. You have to put effort into that. That that doesn't require like, hey, not you don't have to go hire a therapist. You don't have to go do all these things, but you have to like actively work on it. You have to be cognizant of it. And it's really important that you just kind of think about like, hey, no one else can do that work for you. It really comes down to what you're able to do. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed about like, especially myself is if I have days where I'm in like a bad mental space, the most effective thing that I can do is is two things. One, I can recognize I'm in that state, right? If I'm in like, if I have a negative mindset, if I'm feeling like depressed or anxious, if I can recognize that, that's the first step, right? Like there's a lot of days where I'll be like, I'll have a very woe is me attitude and I just have to recognize it and I can be like, hey, I'm in this mental space. I know I'm in this mental space. And then the second thing that helps me is realizing that except for very extreme circumstances, mental spaces and mental states don't last forever. They're very temporary, right? Sometimes they're minutes, sometimes they're hours, sometimes they're days, sometimes they're weeks, but they don't last forever. They change. And so when you're in a bad mental space, if you're feeling like just in kind of one of those bad moods, um, realizing that, hey, I'll work through this. Let's just stay focused on what I'm doing. Let's acknowledge what's going on. Let's put some steps in place to address it. Like maybe I need to take a break from work and go exercise. Maybe I have a conversation that's really weighing on me that I need to have. Maybe I do need to go see a a counselor this week. Maybe I need to go talk to somebody. But those mental spaces don't last forever. And if you can work on it, you can change that mental space much faster. So that's it for the show today. That was episode number two of season two. We should have a couple interviews coming up the next few weeks. Pretty excited about those. I'm Dr. Brad. I'm out of here. I will see you guys tomorrow. 